Welcome, everyone, to episode 129, the MSC Bucket. I'm Dr. Kiki, here with Dr. Daylon James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. Daylon, how's it going over there? I'm chilling out over here. Can't wait to dip into the bucket, MSC <laughs> Bucket. Whatever that is, we're going to elaborate on that. But uh, also, Halloween just last week, did you dress up? Tell me you did something good. Oh, absolutely. Dressed up. I was uh, steampunkish this year. Cool. <laughs> yeah. That. And my kids were running around. Not my kids. My kid was running around last night with the bucket <laughs> of candy. Oh, no. Fill it up. More candy. Have you heard of the, this new Stitch Witch thing? No, oh gosh. Yeah, don't tell me about it, please. Yeah, the Stitch Witch. It's a new thing you buy at the store, and then your kids leave their candy out overnight, and the, the witch comes and takes the candy away and gives the kids a gift. Oh, uh, that's <laughs> good. I was just going to say, our new approach this year was, we said the day of, you can get unlimited candy. You can have just as much as you want, figuring that they just get over it. But they won, and they just, they legitimately went. I mean, it was a lot. <laughs> and that's it but i feel like they it was like a year's worth of candy in one so i think next year maybe it's the stitch witch is, is a good right. call try that yeah. one you gotta do what you can and you know what let them eat some candy it's okay yeah. it's, it's a year it's okay it's okay yeah it's all fine but it's time for us to move past Candy Town and get ourselves down to stem cell business. Make sure all of you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com, where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but you can also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. Of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and you can always subscribe if you have not done so yet to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher so you can get the new episodes downloaded to your device automatically. We have a great show ahead today. All sorts of science and stem cell news coming up and, and as, as usual, an excellent guest. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Pamela Roby today, who is going to talk with us about her work and recent comment article on the use of mesenchymal stem cells for therapeutic purposes. The mesenchymal stem cell bucket, so to speak. What is it? What do we need to know about it? Is it controversial? Is it yeah. not? So many bucket. Questions. It's a bucket. It's a bucket of stem cell candy right there. So stay tuned for all of that. Bucket of goodies. But first, Kiki, before we do that, uh, Stem Cell Technologies would like to invite Stem Cell Podcast listeners to visit their YouTube channel. You can read about it. You can listen to about, about science with us. And now you can get on the YouTube. You can look at it. That's what the next generation of scientists is going to do. They're going to see their papers. On YouTube channel of Stem Cell Technology, you'll find dozens of useful videos demonstrating scientific protocols, workflows, and technical tips. You can learn how to pass its cells in 3D media, how to culture intestinal organoids, how to count spheroid cultures, how to automate blood cell isolation, and more. Yes! So yeah, get over there, have a look. Kiki, with that said, I would love to hear about some general science news. All right, I have got it for you. As we move into winter, some of us might be thinking of being snowbirds and disappearing from the winter habitats and uh, trying to catch some tropical sun. You know, maybe you're planning yourself a, a winter holiday someplace nice and sunny and warm. Well, if you do, you know, you should wear sunblock and protect your skin. But according to a new study out October 25th in Molecular Cell, daily sunbathing is bad for you. Uh-huh. Who knew? But not just that. The reason why. Mice were exposed to UVB radiation every 24, 48, or 72 hours for 60 days in this study. And they found that those that were exposed on the 48-hour schedule developed darker skin and had less DNA damage than other mice. And the trick here is that there is a control mechanism that is involved. There's a protein called MITF, and it can coordinates melanin production with other skin protection mechanisms in response to that UV light. 
They've shown in other experiments with skin cells in dishes that MITF turns on genes involved in survival. So proteins that are involved in inflammation reduction, DNA repair, and recruitment of immune cells to protect the skin. And this is immediately after exposure to light. And later on, once those mechanisms have run their course, MITF gives the okay signal for melanin production to begin. And so this interruption of melanin production to skin protection is what's partially involved in this skin darkening and protective mechanism. And so if you can be in the sun every 48 hours, you'll get a nice dark tan and maybe less skin cancer, thanks to MITF. It's that everyday exposure. You got to give your skin time to do its protective thing. Yeah, the less damage thing, that's big time. But I think there's a lot of young people everywhere that are into the darker tan element. Have you ever been on vacation and there's young people and they have like a whole strategy? They'll be like, oh, you got to really burn on the first day and that you can't win. Anything. It's all ridiculous. There's This is game changing. Molecular cell has weighed in and people are going to be adjusting their tanning schedules accordingly. Absolutely. That's right. Don't go every day. Give, your, give yourself some time. Give yourself some time. That's right. And, you know, on the opposite spectrum of burning and all the, the skin protection, there's well, you know, freeze drying and freeze thawing that we want to talk about. Researchers publishing October 24th in Scientific Reports have reported a cryopreservation technique for coral. Coral, with the onset of global warming, climate change, or as we call it on my other podcast, This Week in Science, Climidia. I <laughs> know. <laughs> yeah, it's like the, it's the terrible disease that humanity gave to the planet. <laughs> as oceans heat up, the coral are dying off, and we may want to protect these coral to bring them back at some future date. And cryoprotection has worked for coral sperm, but not for the bigger, fat-rich coral eggs and larvae. So these researchers who have published, physiologist and cryobiologist Mary Hagedorn and her colleagues, they say that they need to have another method that doesn't lead to ice crystal damage from the freezing process. And so they can flash freeze these structures but it's the thawing process that leaves lots of damage behind because of these ice crystals that sometimes form. Well, they were able to, in this study that's loosely based on a 2017 study involving zebrafish, they enveloped larvae in an antifreeze solution with gold nanorods. They freeze, flash freeze using liquid nitrogen, and then... They thaw them with laser pulses that warm the gold in the nano in the nanoparticles and slowly thaw the frozen larvae. So it's not like a flash thawing. It's a much more moderate, even heating, and it leads to a lot less damage and potentially well-protected gametes for future coral production. Sounds expensive. <laughs> right. <laughs> we will encase them in gold. <laughs> nothing. It's lead doesn't work. Come on. It's just, you know, that's a bit heavier. Yeah. These kinds of things are methods and mechanisms that we really may need at some point in the future. And hey, you know, might be useful as well in IVF, right? All the freezing and thawing. Yeah. We could <laughs> charge it up charge. with the gold. That's right. Moving on up from corals to mice, well, not really mice, but their microbes, researchers publishing in Science Translational Medicine have been trying to figure out how to battle bacterial infections. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimated in 2015 that more than 148 in 1,000 people develop C. difficile infections, and these infections are often antibiotic resistant, and they can really throw off the mix of your normal gut microbes and lead to gut irritation and ongoing gut problems. So these researchers, Perna Kashiap of the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and his colleagues conducted experiments involving fecal transplants 
They transplanted feces from people with normal or disturbed gut microbes into mice. And the mice that got those fecal transplants from the normal gut microbiomes fought off and controlled C. difficile infections much better than the mice that got the already disturbed mix of of feces (laughs) transplanted. And so they're looking at this and and they've determined that these altered microbe mixes lead to differences in the amounts or concentrations of amino acids. We know bacteria like to munch on amino acids and use them as fuel. C. difficile really likes proline, and they found that C. difficile can use it as its main food source, and it gives it a competitive advantage when others don't use proline. And mice that were fed on a proline-deficient mouse chow had less C. difficile in their intestines than those on a normal diet. And fecal transplants were even better at keeping the C. difficile levels under control. So probiotics that contain proline-eating bacteria and also diets that change the levels of proline might help the existing, even if they're already kind of off-kilter bacterial populations, outcompete C. difficile and restore a better balance of microbes in the gut. It's a tough call to go with the stage one therapy probiotics or go right to the fecal. Um, (laughs) I feel like you go for the gusto, you know? I don't have the constitution for that. Yeah, go for it. Get it out. Well, maybe you would if you had a terrible C. difficile infection and yeah. No joke. No joke. And the final story for the day, again, has to do with bacteria, but this time has to do with bacteria living in the guts of fruit flies. Researcher Catherine Schredder, who's a biologist at Caltech, reported in Nature with her colleagues on a study involving Drosophila melanogaster in which they found a new link between the gut of these fruit flies and their brains. Certain microbes were found to affect a fruit fly's walking speed. (laughs) So these researchers They measured that initially fruit flies, when they're walking, normally you don't see fruit flies walking around so much as flying, but when they're walking around, they cover about 2.4 millimeters a second. And when they got rid of the bacteria in the fruit flies' guts, those fruit flies sped up. They started walking faster at about 3.5 millimeters a second. And so they are basically reporting and suggesting that microbes assist in maintaining a certain level of locomotion. An enzyme made by Lactobacillus brevis bacteria normally serve as the brake. It's xylose isomerase. And when researchers supplied the enzymes to the flies that didn't have bacteria, so they weren't making that enzyme, it slowed the flies down to a more normal pace. Xylose isomerase acts on a sugar that's thought to act on nerve cells in the fruit fly's brains that control walking. This walking result, though, really only occurred in female fruit flies, fruit flies, and not the males. And so the sex differences here are going to be a very interesting future direction of work. What's going on? Why is the enzyme and the sugar having more an effect in the female brain than the male brain? But the other thing here is that we are seeing more and more these direct connections between the bacteria in the gut and behavioral results or effects in the brain. And so the question now is, in humans, how could bacteria in the gut be not just affecting, you know, walking or running speed, but mood? Do bacteria have something to do with anxiety and depression and the onset of those symptoms? Yeah. That, I just wonder when I see these studies, how did they make that observation? In the first place? <laughs> Those flies look like, they look like they're real slow. Slow I mean, and has, has anyone ever looked at the fly walk? It's, it shows either amazing attention to detail or some serious foresight in terms of hypotheses-driven work. So, I mean, kudos to them. Big paper. I just don't get how they got there, but I'm impressed. I'm really looking forward to seeing where it goes, too. It's an interesting, interesting study, and we shall see. But that does it for me. Where are you going to take us? I'm going to take you to space. What? What? The first story we got here, stem cell-derived neural cells 
are going to space. So the National Stem Cell Foundation, Summit for Stem Cell Foundation, the New York Stem Cell Foundation Research Institute, and Space Tango announced a bi-coastal research collaboration to study Parkinson's disease and primary progressive multiple sclerosis in microgravity. All right, I'm a bit at a loss to understand what microgravity is going to tell us, but I'm still going to do (laughs) Sorry. Right. <laughs> For the first time, cells from patients with PD, that's Parkinson's and MS, will be sent to the International Space Station for this unique opportunity to observe cell-to-cell interactions in neurodegenerative disease with the gravitational forces that are typically acting on cells removed. So this is teams from the Summit for Stem Cell Labs in La Jolla, California, and the New York Stem Cell Foundation Research Institute in New York. They're going to do this the first of its kind, of course, you would expect. Long-term cell culture experiment in space focused on neurodegenerative diseases. Specifically, and I think this is notable, the project is developing the cellular models of the disease with Parkinson's disease and MS, and they incorporate microglia. And I think that's really the most, I think, important advance here. Microglia, they're the immune cells of the brain. And because these cells are derived from IPS patients, and that's where NICEF comes in, Valentina Fossetti was, she was one of the first to generate the microglia from IPS cells. And that's going to give a kind of like immune component here in space. So combination of the microglia and the neural cells, but the space thing is going to be relevant. I remember reviewing a paper about cardiac cells in space, and there are some points to be made vis-a-vis like how is the microgravity going to affect astronauts and the basic cellular level and like the heart that's really important and i know their vision there's a lot of things to be in looked at in terms of health i don't know about differentiation neural function in there as it relates to neurodegenerative disease but nevertheless the hardware required to facilitate transport and survival of the cells in the isss it's being led by space tango that's the partner and there's this pilot to launch the Hardware alone, it's going to go up to the ISS in the fall and then the full launch of all the other components in May. And by summer, they'll have neural cells in space. I love that Space Tango is the name of that partner. (laughs) It's the dance in space. We're doing the tango. It's always a dance with neural, you know? Yeah. The space research, the microgravity research is so fascinating. It's like, okay, what happens to the development of cells when you take away the gravitational effect, right? And for the most part, we've seen that things don't develop normally. So I'm just very curious how this really influences our understanding. I mean, I guess it's like get rid of that and then we find out much more about what the actual instructions are doing without that added influence. How do these things really work together? I have to say, when I was reviewing this one paper about cardiac progenitors, I found that there was one major obstacle, and that is that doing anything in space is really tough. Yeah. (laughs) And imagine with the timescales of these experiments, you know, it's like how many times are the cells going to be passaged? Is the media going to be changed? There's all these very specific details that I think it can be difficult to parse the effect of culturing in a like a non-optimal environment versus culturing them in microgravity. So there's a lot of obstacles there. And if anybody can put it all together, it's nice if with the Stem Cell Institute scaffolded by Space Tango. That's right. So we'll see how it plays out. And I'm optimistic. Cells in space. Space, you know, if there's nothing left down here, (laughs) just have some brains in space. And you know what else? What else we're going to have? We're going to have some knowledge moving forward on how the quiescent mammary stem cells in the breast are awakened in puberty. A lot of dads of daughters. My brother's about to have another little girl. Big up to you, Toph. And he's very upset about not being able to deal with the changes that coincide with puberty. I tell him, bro, imagine you you can at least punt that conversation. I got to have the talk with the boys. This is besides the point. Anyway, Keeks, you probably know. A lot of changes in puberty in the breast. And you know, there's a lot of mystery there in terms of the biological mechanism, the molecular mechanism, but a little bit less mystery now. Walter and Eliza Hall Institute researchers have discovered how the growth of the milk-producing mammary glands is triggered during puberty. And it's how these quiescent sleeping beauty type stem cells in the mammary gland are awakened 
by a protein called FOXP1. This was published in Developmental Cell about a week or two ago. And this expands our knowledge of how the mammary gland, major component of the breast, obviously develops from stem cells. And it's also really important about how we can understand how defects in this process in adults can ultimately lead to cancer, neoplasm, major killer, major, major problem. Yeah. So the bottom line here is that stem cells in the mammary gland are dormant for most of life. And in puberty, they wake up and drive this rapid expansion of the mammary gland. And they're poised. They're ready to start dividing. And what Professor Visvader and her colleagues from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute discovered is that there's this gene called FOXP1. It's an essential part of that signal. And really what it does is that there's an active process that keeps the cells dormant. And FOXP1 turns on, it represses those repressors, and then the whole process is released from this suppression and the mammary stem cells wake up. So they're still looking into the precise connections between the hormonal process and this gene FOXP1 because ultimately, as we all know, it's hormones, the dreaded hormones that actually kick this process off. But I think having this like transcription factor molecular mediator there is a really important link and it's one step closer to understanding the molecular mechanism that links these external extrinsic or hormonal processes to the pubertal development and ultimately in pathological context to carcinogenesis cancer formation in the breast. So this is a really important part of the process and I'm sure breast cancer researchers everywhere are going to be looking at FOXP1 to look at their expression levels and see if that might be the linchpin there. These transcription factors, FOXP1, FOXP2, and all of their various influences on development of various either physiological or behavioral factors, how they may act as tumor suppressors in some instances, how they act as drivers in others. And yeah, it's interesting, but... FOXP1, it's known for a lot of things, not then now for this mammary gland control. Add it to the list. Add it to the list, yeah. So yes, add it to the list and adding to the list of uncomfortable discussions, I just alluded to it. The testis now, we got to go to the testis, from the breast to the testis, the uncomfortable day in the roundup. <laughs> for you, I'm just listening. <laughs> I'm like, go on, Dalen. There we go. <laughs> this isn't puberty related, but it's critical, no less. This is about testicular endothelium. Two things I love, testes and endothelium. And, and this is really about testicular endothelium being a real critical cellular population, critical to germline stem cell niche processes and self-renewal of spermatogonial stem cells. Okay, so, you know... All mammalian tissues, essentially, or the self-renewed ones, are maintained by stem cell populations. And they have these organ-specific niches that provide factors that modulate the decision between self-renewal or differentiation, okay? And endothelium has emerged as a major player in this process, not only in the bone marrow, that's the obvious niche where endothelium plays a major role, but in other regenerating organs, the lung, the liver in the last decade, a lot of stories have come out talking about the angiocrine effect, endothelial paracrine factors that regulate stem cell processes. Well, although at this point, endothelial cells have only been illuminated in all these other organs, now there's a role for testicular endothelial cells in, guess what? Of course, the spermatogonial stem cell renewal process hasn't been examined to date, but in this new paper by Sandra Riom's group from uh, Perlman School of Medicine at UPenn, they show that these testicular endothelial cells are a key population in the male germline stem cell niche, and they provide necessary growth factors for self-renewal and expansion of both human and mouse spermatogonial stem cells in culture. They show, okay, so they can inject just testicular endothelial cells alone to rescue spermatogenesis in mice that are treated with chemotherapy, busulfane that depletes the spermatogonial stem cells, and that specifically testicular endothelial cells. So if you inject other endothelial cells, they don't do the trick. And that these testicular endothelial cells, they express five specific growth factors, in fact, including GDNF, FGF2, SDF1, MIP2, 
and IGFBP2. Those five factors alone, if you add them to the culture media of mouse or human spermatogonial stem cell, feeder-free conditions can self-renew. So it looks like these factors from testicular endothelial cells are both necessary and sufficient for maintaining the germline stem cell niche. And this is a major, major factor, not just for understanding mechanism of spermatogonial stem cell self-renewal in the niche and what may underlie infertility in some males, vascular defect, diabetes, all yep. these things that have a vascular output. Yep. But now you've kind of deconstructed these processes and have opened the door to culturing human spermatogonial stem cells in culture in xeno-free conditions, which is maybe a, another therapeutic avenue forward for infertile men. I think that's pretty exciting to understand the influence of this aspect of fertility, to be able to bring back fertility, to maintain fertility. This could be very, could be game-changing. Endothelial cells, people. Yeah. You know, you got to take care of your vascular cells. Watch out for your heart health. Take yep. care of your, your ball endothelia. <laughs> you know, if you're like men age, vascular health declines, there's various aspects of age-related changes that also result in sperm quality and quantity declines. So maybe it's all tied together. Yeah, by the way, you know how they had that whole thing about the boxers versus the briefs and the whole notion of... Yes, yes. Cyclists also, yes. Yes, watch out. Wearing the bike shorts, yeah. Your endothelium, we're getting banged up. Fascinating, yes. Fascinating. Should we get? I could go more uncomfortable. <laughs> well, I can't. I ran out, but I got another good story for you. This is pretty quick. A technical story, maybe a little bit of far field of stem cells, but it won't be long before someone puts this in play and does something amazing. We all know about CRISPR Cas9, transform scientists' ability to manipulate genomes, study molecular networks. We all know about it. And there have been all these other type of Cas, like inducible Cas9 and the cast dead and all these things that you can use the CRISPR technology to modulate gene function. But with all of them, even the inducible ones, they're tough to manage or they have like unique guide RNA variants that preclude them being universally applied. You have to like make a specific one for each time you do something in this inducible fashion. So it's tough. The regulatory level there, it's, it leaves a, a little bit to be desired. So what this group did, this is uh, Dominic Neopek, working out of University of Heidelberg, Germany. They made these engineered CRISPR system where they took, so fundamentally it's made of two things. There's this new fangled phage-derived anti-CRISPR protein. So it's a CRISPR suppressor. So it gives a regulatory level, a level of regulation that you can have with these CRISPR suppressors. When they're on, the CRISPR is not working. When you remove them, CRISPR goes to work. And they fused that, engineered these artificial ACR proteins, the anti-CRISPR proteins, to a small LOV domain from a phototropin of this plant called A-sativa. Okay? And this phototropin enables the optogenic control of the enzymatic function of this anti-CRISPR protein. So essentially what they do is they have an anti-CRISPR protein that can be controlled by light, enabled or disabled reversibly, and ultimately showed that it worked in human cells, that they could shine light on these cells and get very effective and rapid Cas9 genome targeting in a human cell line. So I can envision that a bunch of groups are trying to leverage this technology right now with the new optogenics to get very fine-tuned, controlled system, probably in a live animal, to do something crazy that hopefully we can uh, have them on to talk about. Yeah, well, I mean, talking about xenografts, you take human neural cells, put them in a mouse brain, have them optogenetically controlled, you're turning things on and off using CRISPR editing. I mean, the, wow, yes, yes. Oh, no. oh, go. <laughs> you know, this is still probably going to sit in dishes or in a, you know, mouse model for the foreseeable future because I. Shit. As it should. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. I would be a cool pet to have where you could just, you know, engineer them with a the flashlight. It'd be kind of 
kind of trivial. <laughs> it would be. And you may. Yeah. And then, and then there's the, you know, we're programming people with light flashes. You know, you got strobe lights flashing to the eyes, programming people. We're getting there. Well, we've gotten there. We're at the end of my reports, Geek. So what do you got for me now? Uh, well, you're taking us to the future. That was amazing. But right now we are going to be heading into our guest interview segment now that we're done with the roundup. But before we dive in there, talking all about mesenchymal stem cells, I want you all to know genome editing just got easier thanks to cloner. That's cloner, rhymes with donor, from stem cell technologies, made to increase the cloning efficiency of human pluripotent stem cells, HPSCs. As you may be aware, genome editing of HPSCs relies heavily on the survival of single cells to establish clonal cell lines and cloner is a medium supplement that works with mTeaser1 or Teaser E8. Unlike current methods, Cloner enables the robust generation of clonal cell lines without single-cell adaptation, thus minimizing the risk of acquiring genetic abnormalities. Which, you, yeah, that sounds great. I don't want abnormal genes for my research. Come on! Keep those cell lines robust. You can learn more about Cloner at www.stemcell.com slash cloner, C-L-O-N-E-R, stemcell.com slash cloner. All right, so now our interview. Our guest today is Dr. Pamela Roby, Senior Investigator at the National Institute of Dental and Craniofacial Research at NIH. Dr. Roby's work focuses on skeletal biology and characteristics and the biological properties of bone marrow stromal cells, BMSCs. These are a subset of which are multipotent skeletal stem cells. In late September, Dr. Roby co-authored a comment article in Nature discussing mesenchymal stem cells, or MSCs. And here to talk to us today about this and so much more, Dr. Roby. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to get to speak with you today. So before we jump into the mesenchymal stem cell issue at hand, could you tell us a bit more about your research and how you got to be doing the things that you do? Yes, well, I joined uh, NIDCR in 1982, and the charge to me from my boss at the time, John Termine, was to develop a cell culture system for bone-forming cells that could be applied to human and bovine tissue and to characterize the genes and the proteins that these cells made. Now, at the time, in 1982, the gold standard was osteosarcoma cell lines, which were not exactly normal. And so that was my charge. And I developed a method that we use for studying the osteogenic process. And my colleagues here at NIDCR Larry Fisher and uh, Marion Young used those cells to create libraries for identifying the messenger RNAs and the genes for these proteins. And that's kind of where we started off. And then I became aware of the literature of Alexander Friedenstein, who was working in Russia and then had done a sabbatical with Maureen Owen at Oxford. And they were working on progenitor cells of bone-forming cells. And I knew that my cells were pretty mature, and I was more interested in trying to find out about the upstream precursors because uh, we wanted to be able to modulate their activity. At the time, I was trying to get Alexander here on a sabbatical. This is before the end of the Cold War. And after filling out boxes and boxes of forms, the Cold War ended, and I was able to get him here to do a sabbatical. And he taught me a lot about uh, bone marrow stromal cells and the fact that there was a skeletal stem cell in uh, that population. And I had a long-term collaborator by the name of Paolo Bianco, who was at Sapienza University of Rome, who also came here to do sabbatical. And so we started studying these cells uh, a number of years ago. I guess we really got into it in 1994. And we basically were studying three different aspects. One is what the biological nature is. Is there a real stem cell in that population? And if so, how do we control it? 
We were interested in the role that they play in disease. And of course, we're interested in trying to use the cells to recreate bone and cartilage and develop uh, functional tissues. Pre-Cold War, post-Cold War, you run the whole gamut. It's amazing. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit. I mean, I know that there's a vast biology involved with these cells. It's fascinating in and of itself. But with the focus of today's show being the therapeutic end, can you talk about what your expand, I guess, upon what your kind of therapeutic applications that you specifically were looking at for your population of skeletal stem cells? I kind of divide this area into two different parts. There's tissue engineering, where the cells themselves recreate the tissue. And then there's this broader thing that I kind of call regenerative medicine, which is a little bit different. And so in tissue engineering, what we're trying to do is identify appropriate scaffolds that maintain the stem cell within the population, but then go on to develop functional bone. And we have a number of preclinical animal models that we've used. We've also done studies in dogs. I've developed ways to generate uh, clinical grade cells that we can use in tissue engineering. We've identified some commercially available scaffolds that support bone formation, and now we would like to apply that to uh, various different bone defects in human patients. So that's what I call tissue engineering. Then there's this other thing where people take cells and they either inject them directly into an injury or they infuse them into the circulation. And this is what I call regenerative medicine. And this is where the mesenchymal stem cells come in, because a lot of people are using what they call mesenchymal stem cells for this so-called regenerative medicine. And in this case, the cells don't recreate the tissue themselves. They secrete factors and induce local cells to begin the repair process. And I think that would be great. But the problem is that we know that when you inject these cells into the blood, they get trapped in the lungs very rapidly and they disappear within 24 hours. So it's really hard to understand how they're having a positive effect in a distant tissue. And so this has really been a very controversial thing in the field. There's two controversies. One is that Many people think that mesenchymal stem cells are one size fit all, that they are the same whether you isolate them from bone marrow or from adipose tissue or from dental pulp. They say, okay, they've got the same cell surface characteristic. They must be the same. Well, they're the same because they're fibroblasts. But if you scratch below the surface and you dig into their transcriptome, you see that they are expressing proteins that tell you where they came from. So in bone marrow, the cells have subliminal osteogenic factors, and in adipose, subliminal fat-derived transcription factors and the same for muscle. So even though they are fibroblastic and they have similar cell surface characteristics, when you do rigorous differentiation assays, they are quite different from what they do. People are infusing cells from fat, from bone marrow, from placenta, all different kinds of tissues and expecting them to do the same thing. And I'm, I think that that's maybe a little bit understudied at this point, that I really don't know if we can say that they all do the same thing, number one. And number two, the mechanism of action is very unclear because they do get rapidly removed. And so how, what are they doing? How are they having an effect? And there was a recent paper by Gallipo and Sensibi that kind of reviewed the state of the art of the clinical applications. And they recognize that there's a lot of work to be done to elucidate the mechanisms of action, but feel that there is promise to this kind of approach. And maybe there is and maybe there isn't. I just need to see what the proof is for these kinds of treatments. And because MSCs have been so nebulous, that has kind of opened the door for a lot of less than scrupulous companies to say, hey, we can isolate MSCs from anywhere and we can treat this long list of diseases. And by the way, we can charge the patient $20,000. 
this, I think, is uh, something that really needs to be examined very, very carefully. Yeah. And in, in your nature commentary, there is a graph where you show uh, the use of the tenacious term of MSCs. And it, they're, from 2000 to current day, it's just an exponential curve. There, it went from six papers in the 90s to over almost 4,000 today. So it, is it because it's this bucket catch-all term that nobody's differentiating? And can we kind of put in parallel the rise of the use of the term and the expansion of these therapy centers that are jumping on the bandwagon? Yes. Well, I think part of the problem is that people rely on assays that are not very rigorous to classify these cells as MSCs. And as I mentioned, you know, the cell surface markers, if it put it in here and it comes out here, then it must be an MSC. It's, it's really very much by rote. But again, these markers are not indicative of any kind of stem cell. They're indicative of a particular type of cell, which is a fibroblast. The same way that there are cell surface markers that are indicative of epithelial cells and things like that. And they can't be used to define a stem cell. And that's the other thing is that people have forgotten what the definition of a stem cell is, which is that the progeny of a single cell are able to recreate a functional parenchyma of a tissue and they are able to self-renew. The differentiation aspect, the potency, that is based on rigorous assays, and each tissue has its own assay. It's not, again, one size fits all. So you have different assays for forming bone, for forming cartilage, for forming muscle, and you can't just rely on in vitro assays to give you the answer. And, you know, the second thing is that extensive proliferation is often used as evidence of self-renewal but I call that evidence of a tumor. <laughs> so I'm being facetious. But, you know, self-renewal is a very defined thing and best demonstrated by the serial transplantation assay that the hematologist developed so nicely years ago, which is easy for fluid tissues, not so easy for solid tissues, but it's definitely doable. And Paolo Bianco and his colleagues demonstrated serial transplantation of bone-forming cells in vivo a number of years ago. So, you know, it's doable, but it's tedious. And this is part of the problem that the in vitro assays are so easy and they're commercialized and you just buy the kit. And again, it's by rote. If you put it in A and it comes out Z, then voila, you've got a bone-forming cell. And so, you know, a huge industry has been built up around all of these kits that you can buy from various different companies, you know, for growing and, and testing mesenchymal stem cells. As an aside, I've tested many of those products and they do not do the same things in vivo as they do in, in vitro for many of them. I can't say for all of them, but for many of them. So, you know, you struck on this. I've always thought it was interesting in terms of stem cell nomenclature. There's the classic hematopoietic stem cell, the neural stem cell, skin stem cell. I feel like pluripotent, totipotent, the stem cells, it seems like we're always defined by what they could make. And then there's the mesenchymal stem cell, which is kind of defined in this catch-all term by what they look like. Yes. <laughs> it's great that they're all mesenchymal stem cells. But that said, there are, I think, I mean, I went to a conference that was totally do devoted the mesenchymal stem cells as therapeutics. And it wasn't all these quacks. It was people very specifically using it for this immunomodulatory function in like graft-host yes. disease. So mm -hmm. can you maybe elaborate briefly on what are the therapeutic applications that really have legs with the current state of, you know, study right. that's done? Well, there's something definitely going on with graft-versus-host disease. And a lot of whether or not the cells are effective or partially effective depends on the type of graft-versus-host disease that the patient is suffering from. So if you have skin-related issues, you're not so, apparently not so well treated than if you have liver-related issues. And so it's a matter of you know knowing what exactly is affecting the patient most. But it's very intriguing because when you infuse the cells into the bloodstream, and Katerina LeBlanc at the Karolinska, who 
basically was the first one to try the cells for these uh, disease, found that there is this reaction called, and I had to write it down because I always forget it, instant blood-mediated inflammatory reaction, IBMIR. So the cells are very rapidly killed. Now, they might be releasing things. They might be reprogramming macrophages to do different things. I just think that we need to find out a lot more about the mechanism to find out what, how exactly it's working. And then the other question comes up that if it's things that the cells are secreting or releasing when they're dying, why don't we find out what those things are and use those instead of whole cells? Because injecting whole cells is not without risk. And I just think that we might have put the cart in front of the horse before we really know how the cells are working. Now, I understand that much of you know what we've discovered in medicine has, has been empirical, and you know we've found out the, the mechanism later, but I do think that in light of some of the things that have happened to patients that have been treated in these unauthorized clinics that, you know, we're, we're really treading on very dangerous territory. I'm sure you know about the three patients in Florida who went blind from injections of lipo aspirates, which is just mind boggling. Let's take fat cells and put them in your eye. Yeah. What's even more striking about those three cases is that they were injected in both eyes on the same day. Uh, this oh. defies clinical basic clinical practice, you never do the same thing on the same day. You wait. <laughs> and so the whole thing was very, very scary. And I'm sure that there are more instances that we don't know about. And I think that, you know, just the whole magical aura of MSCs has really, I wish that we could figure a way to tone it down and have the patients be more educated, have more information before they make that kind of a decision. Yeah. In the article, you also talk about Kaplan saying that he doesn't believe MSCs are actually stem cells and that the name should be changed. And he's the one who initially came up with the term and now is saying, let's change it to medicinal. Yes. I know. Like a completely different phraseology, medicinal signaling cells. Now that he's come out and said this and you're writing this article and you've written on this before as well, this idea of the nomenclature. What challenges do you think are ahead for making this happen, getting a change to the naming that may actually address some of these issues that are causing therapeutic problems? I think that it has to start with the science. First of all, we have to do better science and people have to start recognizing that cells that they are dealing with may be very wonderful tissue-specific stem progenitor cells and to focus on what they can do within their tissue of origin. And editors of journals need to start recognizing, understanding that they need to get their authors to provide very, very basic information like the tissue source. I can't tell you how many papers I've read from beginning to end and it's never divulged where the cells came from. And it's shocking. And when I write my reviews, I basically say, listen, this is the issue. The term is not appropriate. Number one, developmentally, there is no MSC. Why would you think that there would be one after birth if there isn't one before birth? And two, for clarity, you know, we have to tell people where they're coming from and what their properties are. And for a long time, editors were ignoring me. But within the last six months, they're starting to take me more seriously and trying to get the authors to change the name. So typically what happens is I say, you should call them adipose-derived stromal cells or bone marrow-derived stromal cells. And I get the paper back. And instead of mesenchymal stem cell, they've switched to mesenchymal stromal cell. And, no, no. <laughs> and so we go back and forth and there's occasionally an author who will dig in their heels and, and won't want to change. And sometimes the editor says, forget it. Or sometimes the editor says that you have to change it. But I think we're making a little bit of headway. And the other thing I try and do as a reviewer, because people do 
have concern that if they don't call them mesenchymal stem cells, that their papers won't be picked up in the literature. So what my solution to that is, in the abstract, you say bone marrow stromal cells, also known as mesenchymal stem cells. And you can do that in the abstract and then in the introduction, and your paper will be picked up. But then you call them what they really are, and you include that in your keywords as well, such as adipose-derived stromal cells, things like that. You know, at the end of the day, we're going to have to face this this challenge at some point. And this gets back to the real definition of a stem cell. For the vast majority of cells that have been called MSCs, there's no proof of their potency and there's no proof of their self-renewal. So people are going to have to start doing better science. And funding agencies are going to have to require better proof that what their population is is a stem or, or a progenitor cell. I think about often, as you say, the tissue of origin is paramount. And the the idea that all these cells are one cell is ridiculous, given that, that they don't have developmental origins. But given the last decade, let's say, where we've kind of it's emerged the idea and taken a made a real impact that cell fate isn't locked in and that there is this ability to slide, you know, across the Waddington kind of slide there that perhaps that a stem, one, two things. One is that tissue-derived stem cells, let's take you take a mesenchymal stem cell from one niche, say the bone marrow, and then you implant it in another niche, say the muscle or the adipose. Is it possible that these cells are, have this kind of lability that they can slide between fates? And if they are kind of receptive to the niche or paracrine signals, like does it matter what tissue of origin they are if their function appropriately once you put them in the correct niche? I've always said, mainly because of my original bone cell culture work, is uh, as long as a cell has a nucleus, anything is possible. And Dolly proved that to us, right? <laughs> you know, It was all about the nucleus and the cytoplasm and stuff like that. I do think that you can engineer, whether it be chemically or genetically, modify a cell to express a different phenotype. But that is a different thing from being inherently osteogenic or inherently myogenic. And there are two different reasons why you want to study those. To you know, engineer a cell to make more bone, that's from a tissue engineering point of view. You want that cell to functionally make bone, okay? And if it means you put in a few transcription factors that we know are osteogenic master genes, that's fine. But don't call that cell an osteogenic cell. And don't try and study it for regulation. And this has all been a big uh, thing in the field. There are a couple of cell lines that have been routinely called mesenchymal stem cells that have been studied extensively, and yet they've never been shown to make bone in vivo. So maybe they make a little bit of the osteogenic master gene, but when you compare it to a bona fide osteogenic cell, the levels are vanishingly small. There's basic biology, things that we want to do with basic biology, understand regulation of lineage commitment and things like that. And then there's tissue engineering. The, the two worlds do meet, but there, you can't really say, okay, I've genetically engineered this cell and it's an osteogenic cell and I'm going to call it an osteoblast. Well, okay, but that's not the cell to study for development and things like that. I'm just wondering whether the publicly traded companies can help us drive the effort to adopt the new terminology, whether individual researchers, it might take longer for the adoption to take place because of the concerns that you mentioned earlier, and whether or not these large companies with fairly broad influence can really help drive it. I don't know the answer to that. I was once invited to give a webinar by a company, and I said, I'm not sure you're going to like what I have to say. They were very happy to have me go ahead and give the webinar, but as to whether or not that would change their marketing strategy, I don't know the answer to that. But it is big business. And anecdotally, I'll tell you, when I get a new postdoc in the lab, they automatically want to buy the commercially available stuff. And I say, no, we're not doing that. We make our own. Well, why? Why? So you don't know what's in that stuff. And 
when I was generating clinical grade cells, I would never use something that I didn't know exactly what was in it to generate clinical grade cells. And you don't know if they've put in a growth factor to get them to proliferate faster and whether or not it's really going to alter the biological activity. We do know from our studies that basic FGF, which many people use frequently to get the cells to proliferate more, if we grow the cells in basic FGF and we do our in vivo transplant, they make a ton of bone, but they will not support blood formation. Now, people will say, well, why is that important? Well, you know, it depends on the age of the individual, but we know that the stem cell uh, in bone resides in bone marrow. It's on the surface of sinusoid. So if we don't have marrow present, that to me is a surrogate marker for the presence of the stem cell. So bone is pretty long lived, but eventually you do have to turn it over. And if you don't have a stem cell, I don't think it's going to happen very efficiently. And there are other examples in bone biology where we know if you shut down marrow, the bone suffers because you don't have the, the stem cell any, any longer. So if you're a 70 or 80 year old, it's probably fine. But if you're a 14 year old that you know suffered a really bad fracture or some sort of segmental defect, I would say you might want to wait a while. So yeah, but it doesn't seem like any of this is going in reverse, or maybe I'm wrong. It's been an outcry, I think, in the last five years about these unlicensed clinics. Do you think we've reached peak clinic, or you think we're we still you know have yet to see the peak of these treatments at least? I think that with the recent actions of the FDA, that hopefully it's uh, leveling out. They, but you know, you got to remember that the FDA is really understaffed in this area. It's a tough task. But if they come down hard on, you know, some of the more egregious clinics, then maybe the rest will get the right idea. And there's also a lot of uh, proliferation of these societies of physicians that are not really well educated in what they're doing and stuff like that. And that that also is a red flag. So I see an increase in those as opposed to an increase in the clinics. So it's interesting to watch, you know, what's going on in this area. But I think the FDA is trying very hard and there was this uh the use of the term mini minimally manipulated. <laughs> And so I know that they're working very hard on trying to better define what that means. And that hopefully will be a big help in terms of trying to reduce. But, you know, physicians are, they, just because they read it doesn't mean it's true. And that's the problem that we're really facing. And my own son actually is a victim of one of these. He tore his meniscus and, uh, the surgeon went in and scraped down the meniscus, and then he said, "And oh, by the way, Mrs. Roby, I tried this new technique where I poked holes through to the bone marrow." Oh man! <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, don't tell me these things. Wait, while I was in there, I decided to just bang around a little bit. Is that the level of <laughs> patient consent you need at these oh, things? Well, this was my son is now thirty. Five. So this was a number of years ago, but still, I was horrified, really, really horrified. BT dub. I did something else. So you know. <laughs> yeah. We'll see how that works. That's scary. You know, there is, though, you think we have a lot of other cellular therapies kind of proliferating, too. You know, what MSCs and bone marrow, you know, hematopoietic cells, which are the cornerstone for many years, they were kind of on their own. And now you have all these other cell therapies coming online, I feel like maybe we'll take a lesson from this mistake and be more measured moving forward. I don't know. Do you agree with that? I hope so. There is a paper that's uh, under review, I guess, by it's a paper that describes the bona fide stem cell based therapy. And the whole purpose in putting that together was really to highlight what is real and what a real stem cell therapy is. I can't tell you where it is in the stage of the process. I've kind of lost uh, track of it, but hopefully that will come out soon. There are fields that have just been so exemplary in terms of the rigor in which they've carried out their studies, the epidermal stem cell field 
and what's been done with the skin grafting. I don't know if you know about the patient with a epidermal lysis bullosa, which is a remarkable, remarkable story. I mean, and it's a, a true story of stem cell therapy. And another issue is that, you know, there are some fields like the muscle field never bought into the mesenchymal stem cell thing. So they've got a lot of really good stuff with satellite cells and things like that. Their problem, the satellite cells is that they're not very transplantable because they don't migrate very far things like that. But, you know, there's a lot of good work out there. And there's even a lot of, I shouldn't say even, there is some mesenchymal stem cell work that's also very good. And it's just a matter of changing the name. There are other studies that are just abysmal that changing the name won't help. They just really have to do the rigorous experiments and things like that. Maybe a rebrand, though. That's the key. That's right. Rebrand them. It needs to be specific. I think your recommendation of the specificity is goes beyond that fibroblastic activity and, and identity and into what the cell really is, how it truly works, how it can be incorporated, and then also how it can be used better therapeutically. Absolutely. So, I mean, there's a ton of work to be done in in that area. And I think that people really have to stop trying to get the square peg to fit into the round hole. The thing with uh, mesenchymal stem cells is, you know, the cell surface markers. And then there are these in vitro assays that are really not predictive of what they do in vivo. And the unfortunate part is that one of the main assays for saying that it's a mesenchymal stem cell is to treat the cell with osteogenic medium, and then it stains red with a lizarin red and black with bunkasa. But that osteogenic medium has really high levels of a salt called beta-glycerol phosphate and really high levels of dexamethasone. And if you take any cell population and you treat it with that long enough, what happens is you get precipitation of calcium phosphate, which stains really well with alizarin red O and with vancasa, but it's not mineralized matrix. So mineralized matrix, bone matrix is not calcium phosphate. It's hydroxyapatite deposited on a collagen-based matrix. So, you know, it's red. It's bone. <laughs> <laughs> Those very nuanced details are important, and we don't want to keep you much longer, but we always end our interviews with a final question, and we would love to know from you, if you had not gone into the career that you are now in, what else would you have done? Oh, I think I would have been a chef. Oh, really? Yeah, I love to cook. No hesitation either. You should go be a chef, because I feel like You've done the scientist thing. You've closed it out. You're winning. Get out on top. Open a restaurant. I'll come yeah. in. My kids always used to say they knew when I had a bad day in the lab because I would come home and cook up a storm. And, you know, I know that many people are like me, that they really, really like to cook and, and try new things. And I can't say I'm always successful. And my daughter once got a pin made for me that said she didn't always follow the recipe. <laughs> And you no, know, science is a little bit like that too, because if you want to do something new and and just discover something new, you can't do the same thing over and over and over again. You got to really get yourself out there. There, we got a little gem of advice there too. We got the the what you would have done, and that's another one of our final questions: is advice, advice for the youngsters out there, and that's a great piece of advice. Don't follow the recipe, ladies. Yeah, and don't be afraid to add a splash of some new ingredient. Try something new. Dr. Roby, thank you so much for joining us today. It's just been wonderful getting the chance to speak with you. Thank you and have a good weekend. Thank you. You too. That really was a fantastic conversation. So much fun, don't you think, Dalen? Absolutely, Dr. Roby. Setting the record straight. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode. Be sure to send us your thoughts and questions on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at stemcellpodcast.com. 
You can always take our survey at stemcellpodcast.com. And, you know, if you're interested in other general science news, you can also check out my other podcast, This Week in Science, over at twis.org. That's right. You can find me online. This Week in Science. That concludes Dalen, episode 129 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Everyone, be sure to tune in for the next episode. Thank you for another great show. <laughs>